turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. 1 Thessalonians 2. I'd like to ask this question, why does God allow tragedy and suffering? Why? I tell you, it's perhaps one of the most profound and difficult questions that is ever asked. I mean, you see suffering and tragedy come all shapes, sizes, forms. You've got wildfires. You've got floods that are taking place even right now, hurricanes, tornadoes, earthquakes. And then you've got things that are deeply personal that actually a lot of folks in our church are facing, like cancer. Look at our individual lives. You've got illnesses, abuse, broken relationships, betrayal, unwarranted legal problems, crime, heartache. You have death. We've got senseless shootings. We've got acts of terror. Or just like what took place yesterday, Oklahoma State homecoming parade, and you got a drunk driver, and they, they kill four people, and 44 others are injured. And we ask this question, why? Why did God allow this? And you know what? We all face trouble, right? I got trouble. Your kids have trouble. Your parents, your grandparents. Uh, no one's exempt. Friends, coworkers. Comes in all different forms. You got relational, financial, spiritual, emotional troubles. I mean, we undergo these painful, unpleasant experiences, whether it be physical injury or emotional pain or grief or loss. And and why? Sometimes we suffer because of our faith. And we see that. We see Christians who are suffering. We, we've seen the videos of believers in Christ that are beheaded. Sometimes we suffer while we are living by faith. We're those who are trusting in Jesus, and we have these experiences that are, that are common to humanity in life, but they are indeed suffering, and sometimes it's both. But again, why? Now, I can't stand in God's shoes, and I can't give you a complete answer, but I believe there's some things that we can understand that will actually take us through suffering. That once we see them, they will change our whole perspective as to what God might be doing. Now, I read this story of uh, Leslie and Lee Strobel. They were driving from Chicago to Door County, Wisconsin. And as they were driving, the rain really started coming down hard, and then they moved in this immense fog, and it was forced to drive slow. They could barely see the lines on the road. You've probably had experiences like that. And as they're kind of just putting along here, going through this major storm, there was a truck that passed them. Seemed rather confident, knew where they're going. They're going on the same road, going in the same way. And this truck seemed to not have as much problems as they were. And they're like, you know, we're going to follow that truck. We're going to follow the lights on the back of this truck because they seem to be know where they're going, and they're, we're going to follow them. We're going to follow these lights. And so they did. You know, when we are going through tragedy and suffering, I believe that there are two guiding lights that you and I hold on to these. I think that you're going to find that they will bring satisfaction to our minds and to our hearts and to our souls. They're guiding lights, and I I want you to know that this is deeply personal with me. I have found these two guiding lights that I'm going to give you as the most helpful tools to get through suffering and difficulty. And they happen to be found in the text that we're going to look at today in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. As we've been making our way through 1 Thessalonians, we see Paul and Silvanus and Timothy. And they have gone through some real difficulty and suffering. And yet, you have to ask the question, what kept you moving forward despite all the hardships that you 
had faced. And in our own humanity, when we go through suffering, we feel discouraged, defeated, depressed, right? We can become despondent. And unless we actually have some guiding light, that may very well be our case. So what do we need to know in order to walk by faith when you and I face suffering? Well, look at these two verses. The first thing that you and I need to know is that there is purpose in our suffering. Look at this, chapter 2, verse 1. For you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain. But after we had already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, as you know, we had the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God amid much opposition. See, what happens is we begin to despair and just emotionally unravel if we don't think there is any purpose in our suffering. But notice what the text said. Paul said, you yourselves know. We actually shared with you. You know that our coming to you was not in vain. It wasn't empty. It wasn't a failure. It wasn't meaningless. You see, they entered into a city that had never even heard the gospel, and they present Jesus Christ in a very real way where people see that there is indeed life and forgiveness and that he indeed is the fulfillment of all the promises that God has given humanity. And they believed in Jesus. And not only had many started believing in Jesus, they formed a church, and they themselves were starting to face persecution. And so Paul says, you know what? Our coming to you wasn't in vain. But after we had already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, and they recounted the experiences, and perhaps, how could you not? You remember what happened in Philippi, don't you? I mean, we looked at this when we began our study of this book. When they entered into Philippi, uh, they actually, there was this demon-possessed girl, and she had the ability to foretell the future. She was demonically controlled, and her master was making a lot of profit off this young girl. And Paul actually freed this woman, this young lady, from this demonic possession, where she actually then was once again in her right mind. And far from elation, far from worship that the mighty hand and work of God had taken place in our life, in our community, well, that master became infuriated. And he led a mob to basically brutalize Paul and Silvanus. And they're beating them, and then they actually, the Romans got involved on this, and they kind of continued on the course, and they threw them into prison. They locked them in stocks, which would create this huge cramping in their bodies. They, they were, had physical, uh, physical manifestations of their suffering in their bodies. And so when they finally got basically run out of Philippi, they come in Thessalonica, and they're all beat up, and they're bruised. I mean, for a lot of us, we just say, you know what? This is the end of the mission trip. It's not working, right? We need to go back. People are not interested in what we have to say, but friends, they understood that there was a purpose in their suffering. It wasn't in vain. And there are purposes in our suffering. In our church right now, we've, we've got a lot of people that are suffering. I mean, we've got relational issues. We've got cancer. A lot of folks. Problems, financial issues. Real difficulties, unknowns. And I found myself one morning, I was praying and thinking through, why? What, what is going on? And I just started penning down reasons. What, what God could potentially do in suffering. Now, these aren't in any particular order. I just started writing these things down. One is, 
God's strength is demonstrated in our weaknesses. One of the purposes of suffering is that God demonstrates his strength. There is a great text, and this morning I'm going to give you a lot of scriptures because it is the word of God that we literally hold on to like a life raft. Right, life raft. We're believing in Jesus. We're holding on to him, and we're holding fast to his word. And so Paul said this in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, beginning in verse 7. He says, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger, an angelos of Satan. And this very well was, was a, a person that was greeting great havoc and a lot of grief in his life. He said, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. And Paul says, you know what? I was really bothered by this, and I wanted to get rid of this, and I was pleading. In fact, he says, concerning this, I implored the Lord three times that it might leave me. But listen to this. But he, speaking of God, said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. You see, God's strength is actually demonstrated in our weakness. And then Paul said, you know, most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Let me give you another purpose in suffering. Suffering builds character. Traits like Christ-likeness are fashioned in the anvil of our trials and our difficulties. We, we develop, we mature, we, we see God's character, we learn how to persevere, and we persevere and we find stability and maturity and and even peace that doesn't can't be explained by our circumstances and even joy in Christ where does this all come from what it's it's what God does as we go through suffering suffering can build our character and God intends you and I to grow through the trials that we face let me give you another purpose in suffering it demonstrates that the gospel is worthy of all of our life you see the reason that Paul and Silvanus were facing all this persecution and hardship and getting beat up in the process is because they believe the gospel. They believe that people are eternally separated from God, that they'll be judged for their sins if they don't believe in Jesus as the payment for their sins. They believe there's life in only one, and that's what causes them to keep moving versus bailing out and being silent. They could have ended the suffering anytime they wanted, right? We're done. We're going to go hang out in the KOA someplace else, and we'll just play little games and entertain ourselves. No, they believed the gospel, and they believed that the gospel is necessary for humanity. That's what was going on here. They demonstrated that the gospel is worthy of all of life. Let me give you another purpose in suffering. It models faith in difficulty. It gives a pattern for others. You need to know this. You're going through suffering? Your kids, your grandkids, People you work with, the other kids at school, folks in our church, in our community, your relatives, they are seeing Jesus on display. They are seeing what does it look like when a Christian goes through suffering and you actually model it for them. Now, sure, in our humanity, I mean, we're going to all have moments where just kind of come unraveled, right? It's okay to cry. It's okay to shed tears. This suffering is difficult. It is painful. And yet we model a faith, a belief in Jesus, even as we go through the difficulties. We set a pattern for others. Let me uh, tell you something else that happens when you and I go through suffering. We become much more sympathetic and compassionate. You and I go through difficulty. This whole idea of the arrogant and you guys just got to toughen up and stop acting so weak and wimpy, that all goes away 
when you start to go through suffering, doesn't it? One guy said this, quote, Now that I'm suffering, I feel closer to people who suffer than I ever did before. The other night on TV, I saw people in Bosnia running across the street, getting fired on and killed innocent victims. And I just started to cry. I feel their anguish as if it were my own. I don't know any of these people, but how can I put this? I'm almost drawn to them. That's what happens. You know, I go through suffering. We become far more compassionate and empathetic. Let me give you another purpose in suffering. There is eternal blessing to trusting God as we go through the trials of this life. I want to make sure that you really get this. Eternal blessing. If you're going through difficulty, hardship, especially physical suffering, you need to have this, these verses. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 16 through 18. Listen to what Paul wrote. He says, Therefore, we do not lose heart, but though our outer man is decaying. What's that? My body is falling apart, right? Despite the fact that I'm trying to not eat Bluebell because I can't buy it in the stores, I'm trying to take care of myself, I, I find that my body is breaking down, Right? But listen what he says. Despite the fact that uh, this is taking place in my life, our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For momentary, listen how he talks about his physical bodily breakdown. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. In light of eternity, and this He calls it momentary light affliction, producing eternal weight of glory. Somehow there is immense spiritual eternal blessing that comes from you and I trusting in Jesus in the midst of our suffering, specifically contextually in the midst of our bodily, physically breakdown, that somehow that equates to, like he refers to, an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. While we look Not at the things which are seen, but the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. And let me give you one more. Just what is a a purpose in suffering? Though suffering is not good, God can use it to accomplish good. Christianity is the only religion that gives value to suffering. It's the only one. And what it does is it says that that God is able to bring good out of our difficulties and our suffering. C.S. Lewis, when he was trying to wrestle with this, especially in light of natural disasters, he, he said this, natural disasters have a way of showing how people can draw together, how they provide moral instruction to the survivors, or how they can turn eyes to God. Do you see that? Do you you notice this when we experience some sort of major calamity or tragedy? What happens? Despite all of the political correctness to get God out of our society, when hardship really hits, when there is something majorly difficult or a 9-11 takes place, what happens? All of a sudden, we're done with this PC bit and we are focused back on God. Churches start filling up when you've got problems and major disasters. Why? Because they know that the common rhetoric that's out there does not satisfy, is not true, and they need hope, and they need answers. So what? Turn to God, right? That's what he's saying. You know, it's in our suffering, we, we learn more deeply about God's care and his love and his provisions. That's, 
this actually comes through these difficulties, these sufferings that we face. Now, when we go through difficult times, our flesh doesn't want to turn to God, does it? It kind of repels. It's like I want to stay in my self-pity or if someone's doing bad things to me, I just want vengeance, right? But God wants us to learn to turn to him. There's a classic verse that we actually think of when God works all things together for good. Anybody know where it's found? Right, that's right. Romans 8.28. And he says this, And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. And we like that. Question is, what is that good when you and I are going through that suffering? What is the good? Don't know? Well, guess what? You don't have to guess. You don't even have to make it up. All you have to do is read the very next verse, which is always a really good idea when you're studying the Bible. What is that good? He tells you in the very next verse. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. The good that comes from that is that you and I end up more like Jesus. That is preeminently good. It's the good that comes out of difficulty and suffering. And if you're uh, going through hardships and difficulties, ask God. God, what is it that you're doing? Show me how you want me to grow and change. And he will. Go to a, a wise believer, someone that knows God pretty well and has a pretty good handle on this book. Have an honest, real conversation. They will help you see what God might be doing. I got some friends. They, they got some huge difficulties. Their difficulties would probably incapacitate me. But they keep moving forward. Oh, super difficult. You know what they do? They have this book that they're recording all the blessings out of this terrible situations that they're in. They're what? They're seeing God's good, him conforming them to the image of his son in their difficulties. Can God really bring good out of evil? I mean, can he do that? Well, you know, I think God really wants us to understand this. The very first book of the Bible, Genesis. The, when we went through this, the last half of Genesis really accentuates this theme. You remember, there's a guy by the name of Joseph, a young guy. He's got some things going for him. Uh, he's got some things like he needs to learn how to keep his mouth shut at certain times to exercise discernment. But, uh, you know, he kind of starts talking when he probably should be quiet. Uh, there's, his dad doesn't help because he treats him like the favorite. His brothers, his, all of his older brothers, hate him. You know, he just despises him. And so they decide one day to actually kill him. But then one of them had a real good idea. Like, hey, wait, wait, let's not just kill him. Let's, no, no, we don't need that. We, what we want to do is we want to make some money off him. Let's sell him into slavery. And they did. They sold their own brother into slavery. And then after that, uh, you'd think like, okay, this is terrible, right? God, you need to step in. Well, actually, it goes from bad to worse. He ends up in prison. He's falsely accused. And now he's just kind of rotting away in prison. And talk about loneliness and alone. And yet, do you know... God could have, of course, stepped in, but there were there was things that God was accomplishing. And remember that it was from prison that actually he ends up in Pharaoh's court. He becomes the number two guy. And he is the one who not only orchestrates basically Egypt not dying out in famine, but get this, his own brothers and his father who were perishing in this massive famine that was taking place, he actually rescues them because they actually come to him for food. They eventually, he, re he reveals, I'm Joseph, the very guy that you tried to kill. And then the one you sold into slavery. I'm him. Remember that? 
And in Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, that's how the book kind of closely ends. He explains to his brothers this. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God, he meant it for good in order to bring about this present result so that many people, to preserve many people alive. That's God. He can bring good out of evil. In fact, the very worst thing that has ever happened in humanity, in human history, was when the eternal Son of God entered into humanity, the incarnation, he lived a perfect life. He spoke truth. And they, they beat him. They maligned him. They abused him. And then they crucified him as a, with some common criminals. I mean, what in the world? No one could understand what would be, was going on. And it, it's the absolute worst part of humanity, aspect of our history. We killed the eternal Son of God. But of course, three days later, he rises again. You know, the very worst thing actually ends up being the very best thing. Because you see, it was Jesus who dies in our place. That he himself receives God's just wrath against sin, and he bore our sins in his body, and he rises again, and that provides righteousness, forgiveness, eternity with him, life. It changes everything. And yet, once again, we see that the ultimate evil really actually resulted in the ultimate good. And so, yes, you and I face our trials and our suffering, and you can't imagine anything positive emerging. You can trust that God can bring good from bad. He did it for Joseph. He most certainly has done it in Jesus, and he can do it for you. What do we need to know in order to walk by faith in the face of suffering? We want to hold on to these two lights. One, you need to see that there is a purpose in your suffering. It's like one of the taillights that we're following as we're going through the fog and the storm. But the second is this. There is power in his presence. Look at the text. Look at 1 Thessalonians 2. For you selves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain. Our suffering wasn't futile. There was a purpose behind it. But after we had already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, as you know, we had the boldness in our God. Did you see that? The boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God amid much opposition. This wasn't merely natural courage. This was a supernatural endowment. It comes when you and I abide in Christ, when we focus on Jesus, when we intentionally seek him, we talk to him, we draw our strength from him. There is a boldness in our God. There is a power in his presence. And this is what happened. I mean, God didn't just make their problems magically disappear. This isn't them like, oh, we're really going to just you know, really pull ourselves together and we're going to march forward. No, this is as they're going through their difficulties, they're finding the power of God's presence. They're facing, the text says at the end of verse two, opposition, the Greek word agone. It has the idea of agony. It's where we get our word agony from or agonize. And this is what God does. There's power in his presence. So, you know, these problems that you've not got, we got problems at work. We got issues at school. We got concerns with our own kids, right? We got devastating realities in our marriage. We got these heart wrenching illnesses. We got death. We got grief. What do we need to know? We need to know that there is power in God's presence. 
Our flesh doesn't want to go to God's presence. We want to wallow in our self-pity. We want vengeance. But God says, I want you to come to me. I am the difference maker in this equation. So let me just highlight some of the ways we see the power of God's presence. There are tremendous resources we have that come from our relationship with Christ. Let me give you one. The power of his presence keeps us living by faith. So as you and I actively, intentionally go to God, he gives us the strength to persevere. Our faith continues. We keep living by faith because we keep looking to him. Let me give you another. Uh, It's the power of his presence to courageously speak the gospel of grace. If you and I are not coming to the Lord and finding our strength in him, then we are silenced when it comes to the gospel, right? (laughs) I don't want anyone to know I'm a Christian because that'll put me on the out with the guys or the girls at work aren't coming to like me or whatever. But when we go to be renewed by him, we find that there is a strength to move forward and we can courageously speak of the gospel of grace. By the way, that's what's going on here with Paul and Savannah and Timothy. Despite all their hardships, it is the boldness of our God, the courage, the strength that we find in God that actually allows us to keep moving forward even if we know what's coming. Let me give you another. In the power of his presence, it helps us to live and to love in the midst of pain. And you see this. You see Christians that are going through difficulty and suffering, and yet there's a vitality and a joy in Christ despite all the hardships and tears of life. And and they actually are loving. Instead of retreating, they can live and love. How does that happen? Well, it's supernatural. It's the boldness of our God. It's the power of his presence. Let me give you another. The power of his presence allows us to leave the results of our actions and life with him. You just, I know you and I made a mess of things. Sometimes we tried our best. Sometimes it doesn't work. What you do as we are trusting God, it allows like, I'm just going to leave this all with you. I'm resting in your goodness and your sovereignty. Let me give you another. The power of his presence, you know what? Knowing Christ means knowing that we will be with him when this life on earth passes. It's being in his presence. It's to know, hey, when when I'm done here, I've drawn my last breath, I'm with him. And we've seen this extremely tragically and tremendously demonstrated just not long ago. October 1st, 2015, Umpqua Community College. You want to see a hurting place in our country? This is it. It's rural, high unemployment, lots of problems. You got this small little community college, some folks just trying to get some education, try to better themselves, and you got a shooter that comes on campus. And according to the eyewitness accounts, and I'll give you a couple of them, like one, this Autumn Vicari, she told NBC News that her brother JJ witnessed this in the room where the shootings occurred. Curry said, at one point, the shooter told people to stand up before asking whether they were a Christian or not. Curry's brother told her that anyone who responded yes was shot in the head. And if they said other or didn't answer, they were shot elsewhere in the body, usually the leg. Anastasia Boylan gave this witness. He said, as he's singling out Christians, asking them if they believe in Jesus, he said, good. Because you're a Christian, you're going to see God in just about one second. Friends, it is the power of God's presence that allows us to have faith even in the final second. I believe that only can be explained 
by God. Let me give you something else. The power of his presence is to know that God will one day judge evil and eradicate sickness and pain. He is going to do it. Let me give you a great text, Romans 8, 18. He says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared to the glory that is to be revealed to us. What we're going through now pales in comparison to the joy of being in his presence eternally. Now, that's not to deny the reality of pain in our life, but I'll tell you something. 600 million plus days into eternity, we're going to find that the sufferings that we went through this life, whatever they might be, as varied as they are, they will pale in comparison to the joy that we have in being in his presence. It's an eternal weight of glory. Well, then, you know, you almost have to ask this question. Well, then, hey, you know, if if God has the power to vanquish all evil and suffering, then why doesn't he do it? Right? He's all powerful. He's all knowing. Why not just end it now? I'll tell you this. Just because God hasn't done it yet doesn't mean that he will not do it. May I recommend that you read the end of the book? God does vanquish all evil. He does bring justice to bear on every injustice. In fact, you'll see a judgment. Friends, you need to know if you are not trusting in Jesus Christ and Christ alone, you will face the judgment for your sins. Or you can trust in Jesus and he's already been judged in your place. Christianity is just people that recognize, yeah, I'm imperfect and I'm a sinner. I got major issues. I'm going to be believing and trusting in Jesus. And I believe in him. You can't face judgment on your own. And he says, not only does he bring judgment, and you see this in Revelation 20, but several times, like you see, like in Revelation chapter 21, verse 4, it says that he will wipe away every tear from our eyes. And there will no longer be any death, and there will be any mourning or crying or pain. For these things have passed away. There won't be tears in heaven because you know why? Because God will have removed everything that brought them. Friends, we, we see this and begin to understand this as we begin to power, understand the power of his presence. Why does God not just do it now? Why does the day of the Lord just not start happening right now? In fact, we don't know when it will occur, but you need to understand why God is being patient or merciful. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 9, it says, we didn't, The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but he is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. The reason that he doesn't just flat out like, I'm bringing judgment now, and we're going to bring the end now, is because he is patient waiting for you to trust in him. But one day, the day is going to come. But if you understand, well, why not just end it all now? He is exercising patience and mercy because this is the day of opportunity for those who have yet to believe. When you're going through uh, suffering and hardship, remind yourself that God is good and that he is sovereign. If you need a psalm, let me give you a great psalm. Psalm 46. That's the psalm that says, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we'll not fear though the earth should change and though the mountains slip into the heart of the sea and though the waters roar and foam and though the the mountains quake at its swelling pride. You know what? We've got a hope. He is our refuge and strength. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is for us. Remember, like in Psalm 46, verse 10, in that same psalm, he says, cease striving. Stop. Stop. Just be still. Rest. Cease striving and know that I am God. I'll be exalted in the nations. Friends, even when you and I can't know God's ways, we can always trust his heart. 
Elizabeth Elliot, uh, just a few months ago, she went on to be home with the Lord. She's a woman who knew a lot about suffering. Jim Elliot, her first husband, was a missionary in Ecuador, and he was actually killed by the very Indians that he was seeking to reach with the gospel. Her second husband, a professor of theology, died of cancer. Listen to what she said. It is always best to go first for our answers to Jesus himself. He cried out on the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It was a human cry, a cry of desperation, springing from his heart's agony at the prospect of being put into the hands of wicked men and actually becoming sin for you and me. We can suffer, we can never suffer anything like that, yet we do at times feel forsaken and cry, Why, Lord? The psalmist asked why. Job, a blameless man, suffering horrible torments on an ash heap, asked why. It does not seem to me to be sinful to ask the question. What is sinful is resentment against God and his dealings with us. So how, in, how do you and I face suffering? Let me give you 1 Peter chapter 2 and chapter 3. It says this, For you have been called for this very purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, an example to follow in his steps. That's what God seeks to do. So you see, his example was who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. Remember that? While being reviled, he did not revile in turn. While suffering, he uttered no threats. But what did he do? He kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. Do you see that? He gave us an example. If you're going through suffering, what you really need to do, you need to be trusting in Jesus and looking to him. Fix your eyes on Jesus. That word example, it was used to um, talk about a table that contained the entire Greek alphabet, alpha to omega. And when students were learning how to, to write the alphabet, they would follow the pattern. They would trace it. They would follow it so it would be exactly what they were learning. That's what you and I do. I remember when my youngest daughter was learning how to draw, and she would look at the, this book that she had, and then she would follow exactly what she saw. Since I never got the hang of it, I was pretty fascinated, like, wow, that was really good. How could it be so good? Because she followed the example closely, and that's what you and I do. We follow the example of Jesus, and we do so in his strength. It is one of the many reasons why you and I are in this book called the Bible, why we read the Gospels, because we see Jesus, and we see Jesus going through suffering. And, Lord, we want to follow in those steps. It's an example that is given to us. It's what we're meant to follow. And, and notice that he said, Peter said that, you know, Jesus just kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. That's what you and I need to do. You just keep giving this to him. I, I trust everything to you. God, you're going to have to work it out. Friends, you and I are the ones that decide whether we're going to get bitter over all this or we're going to grow. So back to Lee and Wesley when they're making their trip to Wisconsin. Rain's all coming down. It's fog. Well, as they actually do make their way into the little town, uh, they noticed as the rain started kind of letting up and the fog started lifting, they they noticed that there was this cross uh, on a steeple of a church that was lit up. And this is what he wrote. He said, after driving through the confusion of the fog for so long, the image struck me with poignancy. I'll never forget because it was though it was through the cross that Jesus conquered the world for us. Friends, the two guiding lights that are really going to be beneficial as we go through suffering are this. 
There is purpose in our suffering, and there is power in his presence. Um, When you and I go through suffering, we make the choice whether we're going to really trust God or we're just going to try to endure this battle on our own. And when you're going through suffering, what you want to do is you just tell God, listen, I'm going through a hard time. This is difficult. I don't feel right. I feel disequilibrium. God, this is painful. This hurts. I don't understand, but I'm coming to you. Lord, help me. Lord, save me. That is the path of hope and of healing. And I want you to know that God's ultimate answer to suffering, it isn't an explanation. You and I, we want an explanation. We want to know why, as if we knew why, that would satisfy, well, everything will be fine then. But that's not the ultimate answer that God gives. He doesn't give an explanation. You know what he gives us? He gives us the incarnation. He gives us Jesus. You don't need to know all the answers why. What you do need to know is you need to know him. He gives us the incarnation. Like Peter Kreft said, are we broken? He was broken like bread for us. Are we despised? He was despised and rejected of men. Do we cry out? We can't take this anymore? He was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Did someone betray us? Well, he was sold out. Are our most tender relationships broken? He too loved and was rejected. And so what we do is we learn to run to his arms. And when we do, we find that there will be peace to deal with the present, courage to face the future, and an incredible promise of life eternally with him. Jesus said, these things I have spoken to you, that in me you might have peace. In the world, you're going to have what? Tribulation, but take courage. I have overcome the world. You just look to me and trust me. Dr. Timothy Keller said this, Christianity does not so much offer solutions to the problems of suffering, but rather provides the promise of a God who is completely present with us in suffering. Only Christians believe in a God who says, here I am alongside you. I've experienced the same sufferings you have. I know what it is like. No other religion even begins to offer that kind of assurance. God has not abandoned us to suffer alone. He has given us Christ, who is with us in the midst of it. Like Hebrews chapter 4, verses 15 through 16, it says, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. The one who has been tempted in all things as we are, and yet without sin. Let us draw near, therefore, to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. I think you're familiar with a woman by the name of Joni Erickson Tata. She's an author, author, artist, speaker. She actually sings pretty well, too. At age 17, uh, just a terrible accident, diving accident, she paralyzes herself. And she, um, and something that she wrote a while back here, she recounts a very difficult situation that she encountered right before her 30th high school reunion. When she called one of her girlfriends she used to play hockey with. And she said, you know, I'm really looking forward to the reunion. Hey, is Jackie going to be there? And my friend on the other line said, Joni, uh, didn't you hear the news? I said, what news? Oh, well, it happened last night. You knew that Jackie and her husband were separated, didn't you? Well, yes, I heard that. Well, you know her teenage son, Joshua? Well, he's been having a lot of problems lately, bad grades in school, hanging around with the wrong crowd, dabbling in drugs. He made a profession of faith sometime back, but he's wandered away from the Lord. And last night, the evening news reported that Jackie's son was found in a burnt-out fire. He set himself on fire, and his dad's house burned down. And he left a suicide note in the mailbox. Joni didn't 
Anybody tell you? No, I, I didn't know that. I took a deep breath, and she recounted to me the details of the story. I tried to call Jackie to let her know how sorry I was to hear about her son's suicide. Since I couldn't get a hold of her on the telephone, I immediately wrote her a letter. And let me read part of it. She recounts the scene uh, that when she was in the hospital, shortly after she was paralyzed after that accident. This is what she wrote. Dear Jackie, Ken and I are planning to be in Baltimore soon. And I'm hoping that we can see each other then. If so, Jackie, I would want to hold your hand as you once held mine in the hospital. Do you remember when you crawled into bed with me? I would softly sing to you as you once sang to me, Man of Sorrows. I don't know what else to write but that. May the Man of Sorrows be your comfort. And as in the hospital, I would hope you would feel what I felt and what I still remember this day, peace profound and a soul settled. Peace, Jackie. Not answers, not reasons. Do you remember that night 30 years ago? Jackie, I have never forgotten it. Joni goes on to write, I, I saw Jackie when Ken and I traveled to Baltimore, and we sang that song together. In fact, I talked to her again just last weekend. Her soul sounds settled. The peace still is profound. She is not grasping for answers. She said, Joni, I've got this cross around my neck. It's the one my son gave me. Every time I start to feel desperate, like I can't make it, like I'm in a prison, then I hold on to that cross. Jackie's got her hand on the one who holds all the answers. And for her, that is enough. So friends, when you and I, when we face the unknowns of our sufferings, remember this. The power of God's presence allows us to know there is purpose in our sufferings. You see, we are afflicted. In every way, but not crushed. We're perplexed, but not despairing. We're persecuted, but not forsaken. We are struck down, but we are not destroyed. Always carrying about in the body the dying of Jesus so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. For we who live are constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So as we're going through our suffering, walk on to these two lights. There is purpose in our suffering. And there is power in his presence. And God will get us through the dark night. Let's pray. Lord, how we need hope from you and how you give it to us in Jesus and your word. And so, God, if there is anyone here today who's never truly trusted in Jesus, and they are suffering, may they just pray with me right now and say, God, I turn from self and my sin, and I believe in Jesus. I ask that he would not only forgive me of my sins, but he would fill me with his life, and you'd be the Lord of my life. And God, for all of us, would you continue to protect us and guide us. Help us to see purpose in the midst of our pain and to know the power of your presence for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.